Welcome to your Locked On SEC football podcast. I'm Keon Rose. Dave Hooker and Chris Landry will be back Monday. Today, we've got a number of conversations on tap for you, including visits from Josh Ward, Ryan Brown, and David Ubbin. Let's start with Josh Ward of WNML in Knoxville. Though if you're a Tennessee fan, you'll know him better as the host of the Locked On Vols podcast, where he covers Tennessee football every day. Here's Josh. Josh Ward joins us now at Josh underscore Ward. We always enjoy talking to him. And Josh, how are you, sir? Hey, Dave. Doing well. Good to be on with you. Hey, I appreciate it, man. I was really impressed with what Jawan Jennings said. And the click headline bait was, I'm the alpha dog anywhere I go. But I read more into that. I wrote a column for Saturday Down South about it. That if, if you listen to more of his quotes, it was all about team. And I'm thinking... This guy, like, uh, what, a year and a half ago was dog-cussing the coaching staff. I mean, I was I was pretty impressed by that young man, and I think Jeremy Pruitt deserves some credit. I do as well, and uh, I think it, it has turned into a good story, and I hope it has a good finish for Juwan to go from where he was a few years ago, and he needed to mature, he needed to do a better job of taking care of business off the field, and by all accounts, since then, he has done that. And uh, I would say that Philip Fulmer and uh, Jeremy Pruitt taking over and uh, giving him that opportunity, but also making sure he understood what he had to do if he wanted to play football. Remember this time, well, a little more than a year ago at this point, uh, but last summer heading into Jeremy Pruitt's first season, it was a big question. Is Juwan Jennings really going to be with Tennessee's football team? And now he's a guy that uh, I think he's considered a leader in some ways. And those comments that he made, especially when he's talking about coming back from his injury and he talked about walking out of uh, out of the the room or the hospital after surgery and he's not putting a black jersey on and he's not taking a day off he wants to be out with his teammates uh, out there on the practice field with his teammates that's why a lot of his teammates love him and that's why a lot of Tennessee fans love pulling for Juwan Jennings because of that kind of attitude and uh, he has had to deal with some legitimate injuries for the last few years and, and that's another reason I hope that his final season at Tennessee is a positive one for Juwan. Well, we learn now that Butch Jones is old school dumb. He's old school dumb. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just—I mean, in retrospect, you kind of wanted to blame the player, but now we've kind of learned it's not like a bunch of other schools have come calling. Well, no, not yet. Um, now, one school keeps sending checks, as we we have also learned. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it didn't work out, and maybe that is an example of the uh, the management of the program was not handled best. And, and again, uh, Jawan himself, he's a little bit older now. He he did get another opportunity. Maybe, maybe it's a bit of a wake-up call when you're dismissed. I didn't think at the time, and I still don't think that was the right way to handle it. I thought that uh, Jawan had to be punished when he put that video out, but I thought an indefinite suspension should have been handled, consider, uh, handed out because – there was an interim coach in Brady Hoke. He was on his way out. Uh, John Curry didn't plan on leaving at the time. But uh, I thought that should have been left up to the next coach, and ultimately it was, just with a different athletic version. Yeah, I guess my point is, after seeing Jalen Hurd catch a couple touchdown passes, Khalil McKenzie get some snaps at offensive guard, and I said the moment I saw him and the moment he walked on campus, I said he needs to be an offensive lineman, needs to be an offensive guard. It's just obvious that a lot of things were were mishandled not that I'm breaking any news here, and it appears as if, if nothing else, Jeremy Pruitt long-term, as far as building a foundation, will be a much better, the, the term that Philip Fulmer uses is football coach, 
than Tennessee has had in the past decade or so. Yeah, I would think that's right. Uh, that's why it's uh, – I don't know if it's funny to Tennessee fans, but that Jerry <laughs> Patterson says a decade ago a concern was that he was too much of a football coach, you know, which you, you really want to be careful with when you're trying to hire, you know, a football coach. But um, Wait, who said that? Tennessee didn't help. Wait, who said that? Jerry Patterson, TCU's coach. His, his, from him, his, his belief is that Tennessee viewed him as too much of a football coach and he didn't – have a grip on all the other stuff that comes with being a head football coach because running TCU at a high level, you know, didn't teach Gary Patterson what it's like to be a head football coach in college. Well, that's the thing too, Josh. It's so weird. Is that was, and you were a bit young at the time, probably, but Philip Fulmer was like that early on in his career. He was just a pure football coach and he learned how to do the other things that was involved, and that was booster relations and that sort of thing, and I think he saw the wrong way to do it with Johnny Majors, but to think that having too much of a football coach, I hadn't seen that quote, is just bizarre to me. I would recommend you check it out. Chris Lowe did a story on Gary for uh, ESPN and then David Ubbin with The Athletic. That one was not too long ago. That was just uh, that was sometime during the summer. So, yeah, if if you're a Tennessee fan, you want to get mad real quick. I would, I would recommend checking out what Gary Patterson said about um, visiting with Tennessee. And, and the story includes, of course, Tennessee hiring Lane Kiffin. And when Gary met with UT, again, according to his side, he could tell that Lane was going to be the guy and he was not going to be the coach of Tennessee. And Gary's one of the best coaches in college football. But a lot of things have obviously gone wrong in the last 10-plus years with Tennessee's program. And uh, Jeremy Pruitt is a football guy who is learning on the job other things that come with it. And, I think in the last year you've seen some progress there. There is a difference in how Jeremy Pruitt is doing his job now compared to a year ago. An example would be his assistant coaches during the spring and uh, at the start of camp meeting with the media. That didn't happen a year ago. So uh, it's it's still a a work in progress, I would say, for him. But clearly he has made some changes. and Of course, he's hoping more change comes on the field with Tennessee trying to win more games. Top three surprising players ascending players in the early portion of fall camp would be well uh the first name i'll say to you is not a surprise and because of his talent but i didn't expect henry to 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 get this kind of attention 10 days in the camp i think there's a legitimate chance that he can start day one for tennessee i don't know that uh-huh. that's going to happen but he's competing for a starting spot right away next to daniel batuli inside at linebacker He's a highly touted guy. He's a high school American. He was a big get Tennessee beat out of Alabama. So his talent's pretty obvious. But for a freshman who arrived in the summer to have a chance to be the starting inside linebacker for Tennessee right away, he's going to play. We know that. Uh, Warren Burrell is a guy that we started to see in the spring. He's got a chance to help here. He's probably the number three corner. He's a true freshman that was not incredibly highly touted. He was well thought of by Tennessee staff. So pay attention to him. Uh, I'm offering newcomers to you here. So... Um, a third guy that would stand out. Now, don't forget about Brandon Johnson. He's not a starter at wide receiver for Tennessee, but he's a senior who led Tennessee in receiving yards, tied to the lead in receptions two years ago as a sophomore. That ability is still there, and I think he's had a good camp. So uh, I don't know if he's if he's an ascending surprise player, but he's kind of the don't forget about him player. You need depth at that position. There is still question about Juwan's health and what if he's injured. If he's injured, there there are far worse backups out there at the slot position than Brandon Johnson. Josh, uh, there there is uh, a story that came out. I think Jeremy Pruitt said over the weekend 
that the team wasn't, and I quote, anywhere close to figuring out who the starting five for the offensive line was going to be. Is that something that uh, Tennessee fans should be worried about at this point in the offseason? Well, that's not great uh, when you're less than three <laughs> weeks away from the start of the season, and uh, that's your most important position group probably on the football team because it also affects your quarterback, your most important player on the team. Uh, and if Tennessee gets close here this week, I wouldn't expect Jeremy Pruitt to tell us. I, you know, tonight when he meets with the media after practice, I doubt he's going to say, you know what, we've got it figured out, even if they are closer to that. Uh, but really it's just it's going to be a big question going into the Georgia State game. It's legitimately going to be tested against BYU, and that offensive line really needs to play a lot better than it did a year ago. And until we know what Trey Smith's status is, I think it's impossible for us to get a, a clear answer on what that line is going to be. But no doubt that's something they want to get figured out sooner rather than later. It's great to have 10 guys that you think can go out and play, but if you don't know if you have five that can play well, you're still going to run into a problem. I know there's a lot of frustration among Tennessee fans about the Aubrey Solomon thing, and you want to compare it, uh, at least fans do, to other schools that have gotten players cleared immediately, and that's really oversimplifying things. Do you have any idea what the sticking point is um, or what's holding this up? Because he, he would probably be a starter for Tennessee on the defensive line. Sure, I, I think he absolutely would start, especially with him at Gooden's injury last week. Uh, I don't, and I think sometimes it's okay to say you don't know because there's only so much Tennessee knows in this regard. They know what's happened in terms of paperwork being filed. They, they know the timing and all that stuff. That's not been given up. But what's going to happen, Tennessee doesn't know if Aubrey Solomon's going to be able to play. So anybody out there who tries to guess is doing just that. You're playing a guessing game of, whether he will be able to play. What we do know is that Aubrey is a really important player for Tennessee because of that position group, because of all the unknowns there. And uh, he's an older player who's played in big games in the Big Ten with the Michigan and is talented. Uh, so it's, it's pretty obvious why Tennessee needs him to play. But there is nothing known for sure on the timing other than Tennessee needs to know something in the next 17 days because in 18 days Tennessee plays a football game and they really need Aubrey Solomon out there. But again, we... It, something we never know with any of these cases when is paperwork filed is something have having to be resubmitted what does the NCAA say what kind of feedback do they get that's a guessing game that everybody plays what do you think about this uh secondary because Tennessee is going to face a ton of experienced uh quarterbacks this year even I mean even from Chattanooga for goodness sake I mean there are a lot of guys with a lot of experience in in the east and we don't talk about them much, but I think they're solid, but I don't know about up front if they provide the pressure to keep the heat off the guys in the back end. I think Tennessee's secondary at the top looks pretty good, but here are a few questions. How, how do you feel about that star position, Nickel? Is Sean Schamberger ready to play more consistently for this coaching staff? Because that was not the case a year ago. If Balaam Buchanan's unavailable, they need Schamberger to emerge. Uh, are they deep enough? I mentioned Warren Burrell as the third corner. He is still a true freshman. He's not playing the college football game. Is he ready? Uh, what if you deal with an injury to Thompson, uh, Bryce Thompson or Alante Taylor? Tennessee could have a real problem there. And then what do they have at safety next to Nigel Warrior? And is, is Warrior going to play at a high level? So I think if you look at the personnel, if you look at the athletes that are back there, I think Tennessee feels pretty good. But you still have a good amount that's unknown. And if you can't create pressure up front, that's something that we'll wonder about as well. Well, guys are going to get beat at some point. So uh, there's potential for Tennessee to play well on that side of the ball. Uh, but 
uh, what happens up front is a major factor and if those guys on the back end are going to play well. But I, I will say this at least. A year ago, it was maybe the biggest concern on the team uh, that you had two freshman corners out there and you're getting ready for West Virginia. And we pretty well knew that they were going to get lit up. And what happened? They got lit up. I don't think that fear is there anymore with Tennessee. So that is a good sign of progress in the last year. Josh, your Locked On Balls podcast is out there. Tease me in 10 seconds. Five days a week, 25 to 30 minutes, all Tennessee talk, anywhere you listen to podcasts, download, subscribe, rate, review, Locked On Balls. Golly, that's right on the mark. Thank you, Josh. At Josh underscore Ward. Good stuff. Next, we have an interview with Ryan Brown of WJOX in Birmingham weighing in on Alabama's injuries and what Auburn's offense this season should look like. You are Locked On SEC Football, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. A lot to get to. A lot to get to, Ryan. Uh, how are you doing? I'm great. You doing all right? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good myself. Though, uh, the same can't be said for Alabama. There, there's a lot of injuries on that, that team, and if you could just highlight some of those injuries and uh, what effect you think they'll have, what impact you think they'll have. Well, I mean, there are two. There, there are a number of injuries, but the two most major, most concerning injuries have to. You got to start with Joshua McMillan. He was going to be the inside linebacker next to Dylan Moses. And it's not that Alabama has a body depth issue at that position, but they do have an experience issue, uh, depth issue at that position. Joshua McMillan, you know, is a sad story because he's a redshirt senior. He had waited his turn. This was going to be his year. He played some spot duty last year. Uh, behind Mac Wilson and Dylan Moses, and this is going to be his year. And unfortunately, has a season-ending knee injury that will require surgery and in, fall in, uh, camp, and will not be able to play. And, and, and that's a sad story. But as it pertains to Alabama's depth, now you're really getting a little bit deeper in a depth chart with some unknown guys. Um, you know, uh, one of the guys that I'm so interested to see if he can step up and fill this hole is Ali Keho, who was transfer from Washington. He was Washington's first ever five-star signee under Chris Peterson. He transferred, uh, got in the transfer portal basically right before the season last year, came to Alabama, got cleared to play. He contributed on special teams, but never really saw the field at linebacker in, in uh, serious play. So he's been in the program for a year. He's a highly touted guy. So I'm interested to see if he steps forward and is able to kind of fill that slot. The other injury of note is Trey Sanders, who's a freshman running back, and he was not going to start. Najee Harris is the starter. But there would have been times where he might have been the number two guy. Uh, he and Brian Robinson were going to kind of compete for that. Nick Saban had said he'd been impressed with him, that he had earned some playing time. But he had a foot injury, and he's going to be out for the year. Um, so those, those are the two major ones that will miss extended time that will hurt Alabama the most. But I think the most serious of the two would be at the linebacker spot. Can you remember a time where Alabama had this many issues in terms of uh, players going down? We talk often about how deep no. deep they are, but this is ridiculous. Yeah, not not especially not at fall camp like this. Now they've lost major guys during the season. Uh, the ones that come to mind: um, Dante Hightower got lost. Um, uh, linebackers now in the NFL. He got lost during the season. Eddie Jackson uh, was injured during a kick return against Texas A&M. Uh, in a season, you know, those those are major ones. There have been guys that have gotten dinged and come back, but those were season-enders for both of them. 
there are other ones, obviously, but those are two of the more major season enders for Alabama. So, in ball camp, this has been pretty rare in the Saban era, no doubt. And, well, let's talk about Saban, because what, what is his response been to all of this? I, I Because we've never really seen him experience this, and he's pretty level-headed as far as he's not going to let anything get out of hand or let his emotions blow up in front of the media when it comes to something like this. But has he said anything about it that's interesting or noteworthy? No, he's pretty measured on stuff like this, on injuries. He deals, first of all, Nick Saban, when he's dealing with the media as it pertains to injuries, deals very much in the NFL style. He's very open about it and upfront. He lists guys as questionable day-to-day you know, out just the same way he, you know, did in the NFL. Um, and, and one reason I think Nick Saban deals that way, and one reason that uh, he's not, he doesn't, he's not like cold about injuries, but he's very matter of fact about, you know, Trey Sanders is injured. He's going to have to have surgery. He'll be out indefinitely. So he's just real matter of fact about it because I think he realizes that if he panics about it and he makes a big deal about it to his team or to the media, then in turn they panic about it. Uh, on the on the other front, if he doesn't panic about an injury, if he shows compassion for the player but doesn't panic about the injury, then maybe his team looks at it and says, okay, you know, we can survive this. And it's an opportunity for the next man up. It's an opportunity for those guys I mentioned to, to step up and play. So I think Nick Saban has normally handled that very matter-of-factly and very, you know, very just to the point and – some would say emotionless. I, I don't think it's that. I just think he's trying not to um, he's, he's trying not to give a sense of panic for the remainder of his game. Which which makes a lot of sense. Um, but I, so psychologically, say you're another team in the SEC, you're an LSU, you're an A and M, and you're going to play Alabama. Do, do you think that that helps the psychology of those teams a little bit? That that you see maybe a vulnerability with Alabama, whether or not that's that's real or perceived. Well, I think that's one of the reasons these types of injuries, both Josh McMillan and Trey Sanders, kind of became national stories because I think ultimately everybody's looking for a chink in the armor with Alabama or with Clemson or even down the line Oklahoma and Ohio State because those have been teams that consistently have been in the college football playoff or can, you know, have been in consideration for the college football playoff in Oklahoma and Ohio State's case. case. Um, and I think everybody's always looking for that little chink in the armor to say, okay, well, this is the up or Clemson up. This this is the injury that will make the difference this year. So I, I think that's why they become national stories, and maybe other teams do that. Maybe they look at it and say, okay, there's a vulnerability. Maybe Alabama's not as strong at the inside linebacker position as they have been over the years. So maybe you can attack that. But look, I, I don't think any of those injuries affect Alabama. Certainly against Duke or against New Mexico State or even against uh, South Carolina, where Alabama's the three touchdown favorite. I think it would be going down in the schedule before those injuries affect Alabama. It's certainly on down in the schedule where Alabama could potentially even lose a game because of an injury. Now, if that other injury shackles up, then all of a sudden Dylan Moses becomes a critical player for Alabama to remain healthy. If they lose Dylan Moses, then they are in a world of hurt at inside linebacker as it pertains to experience. A guy like Dylan Moses, 100% critical. And I know that Nick Saban has talked about it at the beginning of the season, sort of reining in to attack of Iloa a little bit. Does that change any of his opinions on that, just in terms of you might actually need a little bit more of that offensive output 
and some of that risk-taking that Tua can bring to the table? Yeah, he's, um, you know, it's been interesting to see him talk about that. I, I don't think Nick, Sar- Nick, Nick Saban necessarily wants to rein the offense in. I don't think he would mind some six, seven, eight-play scoring drives rather than a couple plays and you're in the end zone just to rest his defense a little bit. I don't Maybe. think he would mind Tua Tagovailoa going through his progressions more. He's talked about that. And, and there are times where you can check down to a running back and, you know, get a first down rather than, the deep ball and get a 30-yard gain. And, you know, look, the last thing you want to do with Tua Tungabaloa is put reins on him. He's one of the best players in America. He's a Heisman finalist. And I think Nick Saban is smart enough to know that, obviously. But I think one thing Alabama has worked with him a little bit on this year, and Steve Sarkeesian has been key to this, is trying to go through his progressions a little bit better. Don't just always key in on the home run ball. Work through your progressions. And even if you get to the third, fourth, fifth receiver, if you've got time, get to him, and a 10-yard gain for a first down is just fine, especially when you play defense the way Alabama normally does and run the ball the way Alabama normally does. Uh, Ryan, I want to switch gears to Auburn really, really quickly because uh, Bo Nix was handling sure. the first-team reps at quarterback. Is Are we leaning towards Bo, or, or are we still splitting time? Do we have any idea exactly which guy we're leaning to because Auburn starts the season, they got to hit the ground running. So you don't really get that game where you can sort of experiment and start one guy and then play the other guy. Uh, do, do we have any leanings there? Yeah, I think everybody's leaning towards Bo Nix right now. And, and the reason why is they had their first scrimmage and he was the first one out with the ones. So it's he and Joy Gatewood and Bo Nix is the first one out with the ones. And I think everybody read into that. And then yesterday in media viewing, they got to view 11, um, 11 segments of the practice, and Bo Nix was running the ones, or they viewed 12, I'm sorry, and Bo Nix was running with the ones in 11 of the 12. Now, they do have a scrimmage tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., and I think it'll be telling going into that scrimmage, if Bo Nix is indeed the first one out with the number ones, what does that mean? And, you know, to me, if he's the first one out with the ones again, it's hard to look at that and not think he's the guy that is the number one right now. And if he's number one right now, you're, you know, you're, you're just a few days away. What are they, you know, a little more than two weeks away from that first game and really less than two weeks away from your first game week. So I, I think, you know, if he's with the number ones first again in that scrimmage tomorrow, you'll probably know. And we've got a little less than a minute left, so I just want to ask you really quickly, how, how does the rest of sure. the Auburn offense look, though, for the for the most part? Because we know the defense is very good. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, defense is very good. Uh, they they got a question to linebacker tool on defense, so it's got to be answered. But you ask about offense, you know, here's the interesting thing to watch. Booby Whitlow, Jeterius Whitlow, who's the leading returning rusher for Auburn, uh, was not with the number one just today. Harold Joyner, a freshman, was with the number one. He was not with the number twos yesterday. Um, so keep an eye on that. There's some speculation that Whitlow might have been a little bit lazy in fall camp so far. And Gus Malzahn is trying to get his attention. So I think it'll be interesting to see if if he's back out with the ones with that scrimmage tomorrow. Very interesting. Well, uh, good stuff as always, Ryan. Thanks for joining us on the show. David Ubbin of The Athletic is our final guest today. He wrote about Riley Lovengood, Tennessee's long snapper, who's had a very interesting path to get to where he is. Here's David Ubbin. You are Locked On SEC Football, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.
David, I hope I did much better on your name than last time. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm doing good. Thanks, guys. You got it. Yeah, that's kind of like a a thing for me. I hate mispronouncing someone's name, and you're one of the few, maybe three in a 20-year career that I did twice, even after you corrected me. So I, I felt bad since I talked <laughs> to you last. No, I'm used to it. I think uh, on first try, 70% of the folks that I encounter will go with Ubin the uh, first try, but it's a short U, so yeah, there you go. Um, I want to get to this Raleigh Lovingood uh, piece um, that you wrote. It's uh, with The Athletic, and just a plug for no reason, not just David's work, but across the board, they're doing a fantastic job of diving deep on some stories and getting some stuff that is not written anymore with the shrinking newsrooms that we, we see, and not just Tennessee, but across the board in a lot of different schools. So you all keep up the great work. And um, David, I wanted to ask you first, if you're hearing anything on uh, Aubrey Solomon, you can certainly tell by Twitter that some fans and even some media who act like fans um, are getting uh, to the point where they're pretty riled up. And I understand it because here we are August the 14th, and I'm not taking sides. I don't know if he should be eligible, but I will say this. There has to be, for every team across the United States, some sort of deadline because you get to a point and you don't know whether to use significant and important practice time with him or not. So how frustrating do you think this is for Jeremy Pruitt? Uh, I mean, he's sort of downplayed at all camp. I've asked him about it a couple times. Uh, I mean, I think that's sort of fueled what, you know, uh, you're hearing a lot of whispers about kind of, you know, this idea that there's some sort of clerical issue. I-, I haven't heard anything to support that. I don't know that that's wrong, but I have not heard that, you know, firmly. But I, I think ultimately it's just it- you can't understate the importance of it. They need Aubrey Solomon. They needed him to start with. And they needed him even more when Emmett Gooden went down. I think he's probably the best remaining off or defensive lineman on the roster. And that's a unit that, that just has so little experience. And, and along with Emmett Gooden, he's really the only guy that, that has played college football more than a few snaps. Let's talk about your column on Raleigh Lovingood. And here is a guy. How much does he weigh now? 216. <laughs> <laughs> that is. And he's playing with his hand down. Technically, it's on, it's on a football. That that has to be the lightest, and I know he's a snapper, but the lightest lineman in the SEC, right? He's got to be up there, I think. Long, long snappers definitely def- tend to go a little bit lower, but they're usually more like 240 to 260. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, a, it's an intriguing challenge he has, for sure. Okay, talk about the story, if you can. Uh, tell me about how he managed, despite being slow and small, to make this uh, college football thing a reality and maybe his NFL dream a reality. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just it's such a refined skill. And I think more coaches are realizing the value of, hey, if I have a really good snapper, my punter is going to be better. My field goal kickers are going to be more accurate. It's a place that more and more coaches are spending scholarships. And it was a little touch and go when he kind of first started. There were some coaches doing it, but not that many. And fortunately for him, you know, uh, Butch Jones was one of those guys that was spending scholarships on long snappers. And he had established himself as one of the better ones in the country, you know, at some snapping camps. And, you know, even though he was small, you know, he perfected a skill uh, that he compares kind of to a golf swing. And, and it's paid off and, and taken into some crazy places. It was really interesting because when he, he started – uh, to to work um, with, with I believe it was Adam Miles 
uh, former Tennessee player. The first thing that Miles said is he's got to be able to throw it like a normal pass, which I wouldn't have thought mm-hmm. was the same thing as snapping at all. But I guess that's basically about his hand-eye coordination to test it. Yeah, I mean, there, the motion is somewhat similar. Um, but ultimately, it's just like if you have somebody out there that just like is a noodle arm that just cannot do <laughs> functional, like can't hang on the ball. He's like, you know, I you know, this isn't magic. You know, he has to have some basic skills. And so when he kind of showed that, he's like, okay, well, let's, let's build around this. And, and he was pretty good to start and obviously has gotten a lot better since. Well, I would suggest people go to The Athletic to, to read this column. I don't, I don't want to give it all away. But you also talked about he compared himself to Jim Furyk. That was pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I learned a lot about long snapping and talking to him and, and talking to Adam Miles and especially talking to Gary Zahner, who – it's a guy who has a lot of contacts in the NFL that runs some, some camps for specialists. I learned a lot, and, and one of the things that I learned is that, that you know, a, a long snapping, a long snap is it's kind of like a golf swing in that there's there's some basics, but there's no right way to do it. Everyone's swing is different, and you got to figure out what do I do well and refine that. And I think for Riley, you know, the main work that he's been doing lately is not so much on the snapping. I think he's definitely uh, an above-average snapper, but it's just the, the blocking side of it because technique is so important when you're, especially now that he's going to be snapping on field goals for the first time, when you are a 216-pound blocker, you better be able to at least hold the line a little bit. Here's something I didn't know, and I've been a guy that has been around or covered football for a number of years, that sometimes the punter wants it in a different place. I had never yeah. heard that before. Absolutely, I didn't either. I mean, depending on what the punt is. I mean, if you're having a normal punt, you might want it one place, and every punter may be different. You know, depending on how you want to step, depending on if you're going to do a rugby punt, uh, you know, obviously if you're going to fake it. Guys want it in different spots, and, and that's part of the communication relationship between, in this case, Riley Loving Good and Joe Doyle, is he wants the ball in a specific spot. And so it's not, hey, don't snap it over his head. The task is, hey, hit this little you know, uh, uh, like tiny square on one hip or the other, one height or another. And it, when you think about it that way, the target's a lot smaller. You know, his job sounds a lot harder. So does he really have an opportunity, do you think, to play in the NFL as small as he is? It's possible. You know, I asked Zoner about it. I, I asked, uh, you know, Adam Miles about it a little bit. And I think ultimately – What's going to happen is is is, is similar to Daniel at the at the Texans. You're he's going to get into a camp. That's not that hard. Almost everyone gets into a camp, especially when you're having a special position. And the question is, can he be a more effective snapper for less money than whatever team is paying some other guy that's a veteran? I mean, that's just how the NFL works. Is if we can pay this guy the rookie minimum and he's just as good as this eight-year vet that is doing his thing and getting, you know, $400,000 more in his contract, well, then there's going to be a market for him. Um, And so that's the question. He has to prove himself, find the right spot. Obviously, in his case, going undrafted is the best possible case scenario because he can pick where he wants to go and what situation is going to be best for him and what camp he can get in. But he'll get a shot. I don't think uh, that's surprising. I I think he'll he'll get a shot, and he's got to prove himself and find the right spot. David, I want to switch gears just a little bit. Uh, the Knoxville News Sentinel put out a story uh, that, that Tennessee essentially leads all Division One schools 
in severance pay up to $13 million. And it's it's really bad. I mean, they're the only school that's even at $13 million. No one else is, is particularly close. And I, I just want to know, like, how does that happen? Is that just bad contracts? Is it an alarming amount of turnover or both? Or, or what's the deal there? Yeah, it's all those things. I mean, I, I think ultimately what I've been struck by in the last decade or plus of covering college sports is that agents are a lot better at their job than athletic directors when it comes to negotiating deals. <laughs> Almost universally, there are a few exceptions and very, very few. The contracts benefit the coaches a lot more than they benefit the schools. I mean, goodness, we're talking about Jimbo Fisher right now has $75 million guaranteed that's insane. Like, if he quit tomorrow, if he just decided, you know what, I'm good, I'm tired, he would still be owed every cent of his contract. That is a ridiculously Jim or pro Jimbo contract. And it's obviously not – that's a, sort of a outlier in some ways, but most of those contracts favor the coaches, and so it's both. It's, you know, signing a bunch of bad deals, and then the coaches don't work out in football and basketball, obviously. And all of a sudden, you're on the hook for quite a lot of cash. And, you know, I, 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 I've i been in – the closer you look at it, the fans don't even, I think, realize how bad so many athletic directors are at negotiating these contracts because they get fleeced on these deals pretty regularly. It, David, let me ask you this. David Ubbin of The Athletic, is it a bad negotiating effort or is it that the coaches have the leverage it's both. The coaches have the leverage because of so much bad negotiating. I mean, that's what the market going rate is. It's like, well, how come my contract, how come I don't have $15 million guaranteed, you know? Uh, ex-coach that, you know, four, went 4-8 four and eight last year, half of his deal is guaranteed. And so these things pile up upon each other, and everyone wants to keep up with the Joneses. And then you hire a bunch of the wrong coaches, and you end up paying $13 million in, in, in buyout money. It's a it's a vicious cycle. David, again, great stuff. I would encourage people to check out that that story uh, on Riley. It's it's a fantastic story, and you never know he may be on an NFL roster, and he's a guy that a lot of people don't see. A lot of people know, you know, fans. Some fans know the starting offensive lineman. Casual fans don't even know that, but most people don't know the long snapper. And uh, I thought that was a very good story. So. Hopefully we can visit again. David Ubbin, and I did it right uh, correctly again. <laughs> Indeed. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Have a great day. Thank you, David Ubbin of The Athletic. That's it for your Locked On SEC podcast. Dave Hooker and Chris Landry will be back Monday. I'm Keon Rose holding it down for today. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts, and have a great weekend.